Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, that the our founding fathers had the foresight, the wisdom to write such a remarkable document as our Constitution and to guarantee from uh, the environment of this nation the freedom to worship without government interference. Father, we recognize our responsibilities as a local church to uh, pray for our leaders, to pray for our president, to pray for those who are in authority in civilian and in military realms. We pray that you would give them guidance, direction in this time of war against terrorism. Father, we pray for this nation as we become more and more polarized, more and more divided as a result of the great cultural divide that occurs because those who are operating on establishment principles versus those who are operating on uh, pure pagan postmodernism. And the more there is a division, the more divided this nation will become. And we pray that uh, there will be a solution, and the only real solution is the Word of God and a turn back to uh, a worship of you and the Lord Jesus Christ and an understanding that the Word of God is absolute truth. Father, we pray for our president, that you would give him wisdom, that you would give him stamina, that you would watch over his health. We pray for him in the last days of his uh, re-election campaign. Father, we pray for us as a church that we might keep our focus on your word, that despite the uh, environment of change right now, that we might recognize that you are changeless and that there are no surprises in your plan and that you have provided for all contingencies. Father, we pray that you would challenge us today with your word as we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? How do we know that the Bible is what it claims to be? How do we know it's accurate? How do we know that we have everything that God revealed, or how do we know that we don't have, uh, or that we have some things that perhaps shouldn't be there. These are the questions that are at issue 
for many people when it comes to studying Christianity. The question that we get as Christians is how can you believe that God actually revealed the Bible, that this is authoritative, that it's inerrant, that it's infallible? We not only get that challenge from the pagan unbeliever, but frankly we get it from many pagan Christians. And by pagan Christians, I'm talking about those believers, those alleged believers or Christians who have bought into forms of liberal theology that deny the inerrancy or the infallibility of the Word of God. Uh, this usually is because they have compromised at very core levels of their thinking with the assumptions, the presuppositions, the philosophical mindset of the world around us. So one of the things that we have to do in our understanding of this issue and in answering this question is a recognition of the problem that, that uh, is generated by the conflict between the biblical worldview and the pagan worldview. Now, before we get started, one we have to define a word that we will use many times this week and next week, and that is the word canon. We frequently talk about the canon of Scripture, and we're not talking about a canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. You do not shoot people with the canon of Scripture. This is the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, and it's not talking about a Japanese camera maker either. It derives from the uh, Hebrew word kane, Q-A-N-E-H, and this was taken over into Greek in the Greek word canon, just transliterated over into Greek, K-A-N-O-N. And these two words, both the Hebrew and the Greek, refer to, in its basic meaning, it described a reed, just a simple uh, reed, that was used as a measuring device. And so it came to be uh, the standard unit of measure. Thus, we, t- we speak about a foot or a yard or in the metrical systems. You talk about a meter. In the ancient world, you would talk about a cannon. This was your standard authoritative measuring device. It was an objective standard by which everything was measured. And so the term canon came to refer to any authoritative collection of books for whatever subject there may be. So you may have different types of canons. And, for example, you will hear sometimes a reference to the canon of Western literature, which have been under attack the last 10 or 15 years in academia as a result of the influence of postmodernism, because postmodernism, which is the uh, orientation of the modern world, is against any kind of canon or any sort of authority. And what this tells us is that the core issue here, the core issue that underlies the question of how can we trust the Bible, is really a question of authority. And as we go back in time to the fall of Adam and Eve, we recognize the core problem in the human soul is a problem of the rejection of God's authority. And so the orientation, the predisposition of the fallen human being is to reject the authority of God, and therefore he has a presuppositional bias 
against the authority of the Word of God. Nevertheless, what the Bible claims is that the Word of God, the Bible is a self-authenticating revelation, a self-authenticating revelation. This is something that is always challenged by human viewpoint. Human viewpoint challenges the biblical concept that God can speak to man, that God has spoken to man, that that there is objective revelation from God to man. Human viewpoint or, or pagan thought always challenges the concept of inspiration or the concept of canon. So we see, as we do in almost every area, this conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is the also the orientation of paganism. The term pagan refers to those who are set over against the Bible, who have non-biblical thinking. It's not just a uh, term of insult or a pejorative term. It is a uh, technical term referring to non-biblical thinking. So on the one hand, we have divine viewpoint, and the other hand, we have a human viewpoint. And divine viewpoint says that the source of the Bible is God. Therefore, the issue is authority, but the issue is also a matter of trustworthiness. Is God capable of so overseeing the process of revelation that he can guarantee that it's free from error? If so, then that means that we can trust the Bible. See, that's the other issue here. It's an issue of authority. It's an issue of trustworthiness. This is why inerrancy is such a crucial concept. If the data has errors in it, then we can't trust it. We don't know where to trust it. And it is. it then becomes a matter of opinion as to which parts of the Bible are trustworthy. And if we recognize that the Bible itself claims that it is a legal document, this is the concept of covenant or what we call testament. The, we use this every time we talk about the Old Testament or the New Testament. We're talking about the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. That a covenant is actually a contract. It's a legal document. And for the legal document to be binding, every word has to be true. Think about that. When you sign a contract, with your, uh, when you sign a contract with your credit card company or with you sign a contract in terms of your mortgage, you're supposed to read, most of you don't, but you're supposed to read every single word because once you sign that contract, every word is binding. And you go back later on, you discover some hidden clause in there, some fine print that changes the meaning that you thought was there. Well, you, now you're bound to it. So the the issue in a contract is that every single word is important. And if you come in and you start saying, well, the words aren't, there's no infallibility there, the words aren't important, the words are, it's just the ideas, you try to pull that one on your mortgage company sometime. Well, you know, it really doesn't mean that I have to pay $895.37 every month. It's just the idea that I need to make a payment every month. So here's $200, Okay. See, this is what liberal theology says, that, that God's covenant, it's not really, you know, the words aren't inspired, the words aren't authoritative, it's not inerrant, it's just the ideas that are good. So we just have to extract these general ideas. Well, you can't live like that in the real world. So a divine viewpoint emphasizes that God is the source. It's really a legal contractual agreement. God himself has bound himself 
to a legal contract to man. Because remember, these the, the contracts are, are, are unilateral. God is the one who has established the contract with man, and it is called an unconditional covenant. So in divine viewpoint, God's the source. There is a, it, it, it's a covenant structure, but there's something else that's important, and that is the term self-authenticating. Self-authenticating. Now, some people get the idea, well, when you, when you talk about Scripture as being self-authenticating, you just get caught up in this circular argument. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And why do you know the Bible is the Word of God? Because it says so. Uh, what's your basis for saying the Bible is the Word of God? Well, it's, it says so. So you have this self-claim, and, and so there's no external authority. And that's true. There is no external authority because if the Bible is what it claims to be, that is the Word of God, then to what higher authority can you appeal? If God speaks, there is no higher authority. You can't say, say, claim that human ideas or the ideas of the creature, the experience of the creature are a higher authority than God himself. So that, uh, so what we're saying in the term self-authenticating is as God speaks, his voice carries its own validation. The creature who is created in the image and likeness of God hears the voice of God in the command of God. So when God speaks, man knows that God speaks. He may suppress that in unrighteousness, as God say, as, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, but nevertheless he recognizes that this is the voice of God. Because it is the voice of God, we know that there that you can validate it, not prove it, but validate it through various external circumstances. And this is what we've done the last few weeks. We've looked at archaeology. We've looked at history. We've looked at the fact that the Bible itself has no internal contradictions, and it is not contradicted externally through anything discovered archaeologically or historically. We've looked at prophecy. We have looked at the Bible claims to have predictive prophecy, and there are numerous uh, examples of predictive prophecy in the Bible that were detailed and came to fulfillment in precise detail. So this shows that the, gives evidence that the Bible is what it claims to be. Now, the human viewpoint or the pagan challenge on the other side is that is built on a presupposition, and we studied this a while back, and their presupposition is anti-supernatural. And this has been the orientation of modern man since the 16th century. And it came in with rationalism and empiricism, and it, it really flowered during the period of the Enlightenment. And then it gave birth to 19th century uh, philosophical thought that basically said man can't know God. It's impossible. God is so other that man just can't know him. There, there's no way that God can speak to man. See, that was a presupposition that if there is a God, we can't know him. He's so far out there. And then that eventually led to the idea that there is, there can't be anything supernatural. And their view was that the universe is a closed system. And that fits with the whole concept of evolution. 
that God doesn't act in the system of the universe. It's a closed system. It's not open to God. There's, therefore, there's no miracles. There's no revelation. None of these things can take place. Based on this anti-supernaturalism, the idea in human, in, in human viewpoint paganism is that man determines... Uh, Man determines revelatory authority or religious authority. Let me put it that way. Man determines religious authority. Now, see, here's the difference. In human viewpoint, the authority comes from a man, a group of men, a religious council, or a body of leaders. And they say, this is what God says. On the other hand... The Bible teaches that the Word of God is self-authenticating and that even though you have church councils, religious groups that have recognized which books are in the Bible, they are simply recognizing something that is already in practice and has already been in place and recognized by believers, whether Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, for centuries. It's an after-the-fact thing. By the time the Council of Yomni, as we'll see, this is the human viewpoint challenge. Today what we're looking at is Old Testament canon. Next week we'll look at New Testament. In other words, how do we get the Old Testament? How do we know it's true? Next week, how do we get the New Testament? How do we know it's true? And the challenge that you'll hear from the human uh, human viewpoint pagan argument is that, well, the, the Old Testament canon wasn't established until the Council of Yomnia in 90 A.D., it was this council of Jewish rabbis that determined what would be in the Old Testament, what would not be in the Old Testament. That was in 90 A.D. See, they put the authority in a group of men. You get the same kind of thing we'll see in the New Testament that, that they say that, well, the New Testament canon wasn't, was determined by a church council in the 5th century or, or 4th century A.D. But the reality is, is that the people... The churches, the synagogues, the Old Testament prophets clearly recognized what books were from God and which books weren't from God. And the canon of the Old Testament, as we'll see, was actually understood to be closed 200 years before Jesus was born. By 200 B.C., they knew which books and clearly had lists of authoritative Old Testament books and those that weren't. And it and it fits our Old Testament canon. What the Council of Yomnia was just doing was sort of validating what had been accepted practice for 300 years. The same thing happens in the New Testament church. The canon is clearly defined by 200 A.D. It's recognized by them which books were part, of, which were accepted, which weren't. But there wasn't a formal recognition of this by a church council until about 360, 370 A.D., somewhere in there. They didn't determine what the canon would be. They're just recognizing what's already accepted practice. So paganism gets it completely backward. Paganism always puts the emphasis on human authority, and this comes out of what, what we see in other world religions. For example, in Mormonism and Islam, these religions claim to have a book, an authoritative book, that was given them in toto. The whole thing's given to them by an angel in a revelatory episode where an angel appears to one man and gives him the whole book front to end uh, at one time 
and then that's imposed on the group. Other religions have a collection of writings from a human leader that doesn't claim to have divine authority, but these are just general religious principles. For example, the book of Science and Health by Mary Blake Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddy, in Christian Science. Because they, they their whole concept of, of authority is that, that God doesn't really speak. You just have uh, this wisdom that comes out of the innate divinity of man. Or a third way in which human viewpoint or pagan religions develop their religious books, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, or you can look at ancient pagan uh, religious works and myths, Greek myths, Egyptian myths, and what we have is a collection of divine uh, stories, that is, stories about the gods that contain maxims or principles for life, but they don't claim to be the verbally inspired revelation from God. So, all, all uh, pagan religions, everything other than Christianity, ultimately has its authority source in man the creature. And man imposes that. So coming out of paganism, the, the unbeliever obviously makes this charge against the Christian that, well, the Bible is just, the, you know, those books are just there because some group made that decision. And the challenge today in, po- in a postmodern environment is the question, well, who gives that group or any group the authority to make that, make such a claim? And see, even in Roman Catholicism, you have this same motif working. Roman Catholicism is a result of the assimilation of divine viewpoint with human viewpoint from the early 2nd century at least. You don't really have what we would call full-blown Roman Catholic theology until later in the Middle Ages, but many of the distinctives of what becomes Roman Catholic theology are are found back into at least the the late 2nd century, the shift to allegorical theology that comes out of Origen's writings. Uh, When you get into the uh, 4th century and you get into the Nestorian controversy. The issue is, was, was Mary the mother of God or the mother of Jesus? And, of course, it takes a number of years before that's worked out, and they, that eventually ends up in the worship of Mary. But when it comes to the canon, in Roman Catholicism, it is... The issue, again, is authority. Is the authority in the church, or is the authority in the... In the New Testament. And Roman Catholicism says that the authority is in the church. See, this is paganism. It's a body of men. And the men determine canonicity. And frankly, the, the issue of canon in the Roman Catholic Church isn't settled until the Council of Trent in the mid, in about 1540 to 1550 AD as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. So Roman Catholicism never settles the canon until about 1550, just as a, as a round date. Whereas Protestant theology and early church theology is that, teaches that the authority is in the New Testament itself. See, this, this is the same model I started off with. It's human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Is the authority in men or is the authority within the Word of God itself, that self-authenticating revelation, that the voice of God 
carries within it the own authority. If God were to speak right now, every one of us would fall on our face. That's the example in Scripture. We wouldn't say, well, how do we know that's God? We would know it was God. We're created in His image. His voice would would resonate and reverberate within our souls, and there would be no doubt, no question that it was the voice of God. When God spoke in Mount Sinai, what did the Jews say? Is that God? What's going on here? No, they fell on their face. They said, we can't handle it. You know, go up there, Moses, and talk to him alone. We don't want to listen to this. It's too much for us. They, they, the sinful, fallen creature can't handle the voice of God. So we have to recognize that the, that the core issue underlying the, the challenge, the question, well, how do you know that the Old Testament's really the Word of God? How can you really trust it? How do you know there aren't other books that were overlooked or left out? How do you know that um, <clears throat> that we really have the word that we can really trust it? Is the issue of authority? Is it is the ultimate authority in man or in God? And it's the issue of trustworthiness. Can we trust it? And if this is the voice of God, then not only can we trust it, but we can't trust anything else. And this goes back to something I said at the very beginning of this series, that if there is a God, nothing else matters. But if there is no God, then nothing matters. If there is a God and he has spoken, then nothing matters more than to know what he has said and to put that into application in our own own lives. Now, when we get into a study of the issue of how we got the Old Testament, it's clear that the New Testament recognizes that there was a set defined Old Testament canon by the New Testament period. For example, in first in Second Timothy three, fifteen through seventeen, Paul writes to Timothy in verse fifteen, and that from childhood, Timothy, he says, you've known the sacred writings. Well, when Timothy was a child, there was no New Testament. When Timothy was a child, Jesus was a child. When Timothy was a child, Jesus had not started his public ministry. So the only thing the sacred writings term can refer to is the Old Testament. He says that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about a a set body of writings known as the sacred writings. And then he says in verse 16, all scripture. Well, what do you think he's referring to there? He's not referring to New Testament writings per se. He's referring to Old Testament, what he's just talked about in verse 15. But, of course, it would include New Testament as well. All Scripture is inspired, that is, breathed out by God, theopneustos, breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So here in first in 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17, there is embedded the recognition that there is a set body of of authoritative writing in the Old Testament. We find the same thing in 2 Timothy, I mean 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, where Peter says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Of course, both of these passages are important for understanding the doctrine of inspiration, but all we're pointing out here is that both of these passages assume that there is a distinct Old Testament canon, that there is a specific body of authoritative literature in the Old Testament. 
as opposed to non-sacred writings. Now, the question we're answering this morning is, how did this come about? What's the extent of this Old Testament canon, and how well was it transmitted? Can we really trust what we have? Wasn't it lost? I mean, the claim that you often hear is the Bible was translated and translated and translated, and that, of course, over a thousand years, you've got to have lost a few things along the way. How do we know that we have it all? We might have lost a few things, or somebody might have missed a few books that got written by somebody, and and uh, we, we have additional things to look at. So what, what's our evidence? Well, first of all, we have to realize that the Old Testament itself recognizes from the earliest writings, the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch means the first five, or the Pentateuch refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. It uh, actually means, the word itself means five in a case, that they would take five scrolls and put them in one case. So it refers to the first five books, which are attributed to Moses. This is why when you get into studies of this sort, there's a real challenge on Mosaic authorship. The Bible claims Mosaic authorship. If Moses didn't write it, then we have a different Pentateuch. We have a different beginning. Well, there are several passages that show that from the very beginning, these writings were viewed as authoritative. For example... Exodus 24.4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. The point is that when it says Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, what Moses wrote was considered to be the uh, totality of God's communication. And so that is a recognition that what Moses wrote came from God. See, when we use that word, word of God, what do you mean? Do you mean the word about God or the word from the source of God? See, liberal theology and what is called neo-orthodoxy, when they hear the word, word of God, what they're hearing is word about God. See, their view is the Bible is just a lot of human writings describing their experiences with, quote, God. Whereas... Conservative, fundamental, in the true sense of the word, biblical theology hears, when you hear the word, word of God, they hear word from God, that this is the revelation from God. Another passage that shows that the early church understood, the, I mean, the early Old Testament writers understood a, that what they were writing was from God is given in Joshua 8.30, through 35, and in those passages, we're told about uh, Joshua uh, reconfirming the covenant with the Jews as they've gone in to conquer the land. They've already conquered Jericho and Ai, and they went to the area between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim near Shechem, which is what we studied on uh, Wednesday night when we were studying about the importance of these geographical locations in our study on Genesis. And we're told there, he, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, and then he put that into the Ark of the Covenant as a witness uh, to the people. It is a legal ceremony. It is a courtroom type of ceremony where they are reconfirming this contract with God. 
Deuteronomy 31.26 refers to this as well. Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. It's viewed as having come uh, from God. Samuel also, in 1 Samuel 10.25, uh, sees this as a authoritative, as having come from God. Uh, Jeremiah is attested by Daniel's having been inspired. In Daniel 9.2, Daniel... Uh, writes, uh, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So he attributes divine authorship to the book of Jeremiah. And Dan, and uh, Nehemiah 9.14, Nehemiah, the author of Nehemiah recognizes that Moses wrote the words, the precepts, the ordinances of God. So the Old Testament has within itself verses that attest to the fact that the writers understand and understood that that the Mosaic law, the books of Moses, came from God and that other books came from God. But they also quote non-biblical sources. For example, you have a reference in Joshua 10.13 to the non-canonical book, the book of Jasher. And this apparently was a secular record or historical record of the of uh, the history of Israel. Numbers uh, twenty one fourteen mentions a another uh, non canonical writing called the Book of the Wars of the Lord. So there were these chronicles or these writings, these historical writings that were not considered to be inspired. So. So in the Old Testament, you had a lot of different writings, even though these haven't survived. We know that from from this witness there were other writings, and there were clearly those that were viewed as being canonical and and as from the Lord and those that weren't, those that were authoritative and others that weren't. Now, when we address the question of canon, we have to, of course, go back and understand what do we mean by the canon? What is the Old Testament canon? What are the books of the Old Testament? And there are really two different ways to look at it. The Hebrew Old Testament is organized differently than the English Old Testament. In your English Bible, you have 39 uh, books of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew arrangement, there are only 22 or in some cases 24 books, depending on how they divide things up. So the Hebrew canon is divided into Three sections. There's the Torah. The second section is the Nevi'im. And the third section is called the Ketuvim. The Torah refers to the law. That's the Hebrew word for law. Nevi'im is the Hebrew word for prophets. And Ketuvim is the Hebrew word for writings. And this has given rise to an acronym that is used to refer to the Hebrew Old Testament, taking the consonants of the uh, of the beginning of each of these words, T, N, and K, and then adding your vowels, you come up with the word Tanakh. Tanakh. And that is a word that is used to refer to the Jewish Old Testament. And I have a copy of the Tanakh at home, which is a, a Jewish translation of the of the Old Testament. The Torah consists of five books, same as our Pentateuch, the Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im is divided into the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Notice they don't break Samuel and Kings into two books. That's why you have fewer books in the Old Testament canon, as they combine these together. So First and Second Samuel is just Samuel. First and Second Kings is just Kings. 
Then you have the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then our 12 minor prophets, which we break out into 12 books, they can call the 12. So for them, that's just one book. And then you have the Ketuvim, the wisdom book, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, which is viewed as one book in some organizations, two books in others, uh, Esther and Chronicles. So the Hebrew canon contains the same number of books that the or content, uh, contains the same books that the English canon contains that your English Bible contains. It's just divided a little differently. So in, in the English Bible, it follows a different pattern. You have the law, you have historical books, then you have the poetry. Then you have the major prophets and then the minor prophets. The books of the law or Genesis through Deuteronomy, same as we have in the uh, Hebrew Torah. Then we have the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That all follows a historical order, uh, a chronological order. Then you have poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations. The major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. See, Daniel's not considered a prophet in the Old Testament canon. Why? Because he didn't hold the office of prophet. He had the gift of prophet, but he didn't hold the office of prophet. So in the, in the, to the Jews, he's not in the, Daniel isn't in the collection known as the Nevi'im. He's in the writings. Then you have the 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. Now, <clears throat> when uh, you get into looking at the uh, Old Testament issue of canon, you see some differences in modern among modern Christians. You don't see a difference with the Jews. The Jews only accept these 39 books, or in their canon, 22 or 24. They do not include another group that is referred to as the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a term, or the term Apocrypha means that which is hidden, obscure, or spurious. These are not accepted by Protestants as authoritative in any way. They're not accepted by Jews as authoritative in any way. They are therefore not part of the canon for either Protestants or Jews. However, they are accepted by Roman Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, and Syrian churches also have a slightly different Old Testament canon. Now, everybody's got the same New Testament group. Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Syrians, all have the same New Testament grouping. The only time you have a difference is in the Old Testament with the Apocrypha. Now, that's important because there's a lot of challenge going on right now to to the New Testament canon. But don't get this confused. The Apocrypha and the differences only relate to Old Testament. Everybody agrees on the 27 New Testament books. The Apocrypha only relates to Old Testament, and most of it's uh, uh, intertestamental uh, history, that is, things that occurred between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a list of the books that are included in the Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, the book of Judith. There's uh, six chapters added to Esther. 
There's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, another book called Ecclesiasticus or Ben Sirach, the book of Baruch. Remember, Baruch was the assistant to Jeremiah. There's a book called The Letter of Jeremiah. There's a book called The Prayer of Azariah or The Song of the Three Young Men. These are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The book of Susanna, the book of Bel and the Dragon, which is in addition to Daniel, and the historical books, First and Second Maccabees, which gives us a good history of the period between the closing of the canon, 400 A.D., with Malachi. Remember, Malachi was the only Italian prophet in the Old Testament. Malachi. And First and Second Maccabees covers that period between about 200 or 300 A.D. and about a, I mean 300 B.C. and about 100 B.C. So it's good history. And when we went through Daniel, I referred to First and Second Maccabees frequently for historical data, but it's not authoritative. Now, where did the where did the apocrypha come from? At the end of the fourth century. Okay, so we're talking about, about roughly around 380. 390 A.D. This is after this is after the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325. Let me put a timeline up here for you. Three. Oh, let's go. 315, approximately. I can't ever remember the exact date. This is when Constantine becomes emperor, plus or minus a year or two. 325. This is when the Council of Nicaea met and dealt with the issue of Arianism and defined that Jesus Christ is eternal God of eternal God. Then in approximately, I think it's 351, I'll have this definite next week, but I think it's 351 A.D. is when Athanasius sends out a an Easter letter. He's the bishop of North Africa, and he sends out an Easter letter. And in that Easter letter, he lists 27 books of the New Testament. That's the first time that we have a list of the 27 books that we have in the New Testament. But he's not making a pronouncement. He's not saying, these are the only books. You can't use any other books. He's just recognizing that these are the books that we use. We don't use any other books. And then... Um, in about three, in the 360s to 370s, there's a council that recognizes, and that's the first uh, council that lists the 27 books. And so what we're talking about right now with Jerome comes at the end of this century. Okay? So Athanasius has already listed his 27 books. Uh, I think it was the Council of of uh, Constantinople, I mean, yeah, the Council of Constantinople listed the authority, what books were authoritative and which ones were not accepted by the church. And this is after that. Okay, at the end of the 4th century, Pope Damasus, D-A-M-A-S-U-S, Pope Damasus commissioned Jerome, who was the most uh, learned biblical scholar of his day, to prepare a standard Latin version of the Scriptures. He was to translate the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Latin so that people could read it in their common language, the vulgar 
language. That's what vulgar means in Latin is common. So it would be translated into vulgar language, so it became known as the Vulgate. And that was the standard Latin uh, Bible used all through the Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Old Testament, Jerome followed the Hebrew canon, and in the preface, he called the reader's attention to a separate category of books called apocryphal books, And in the preface to his Latin version, he said that anything outside of these must be placed within the Apocrypha. So he clearly recognizes that the 39 books that we think of as the Old Testament were the authoritative Old Testament. But he recognizes that there's also some other books that should be read because they are profitable for understanding history and perhaps for some encouragement in the spiritual life. So he included as sort of an appendix to the Old Testament the books that we call the Apocrypha. Well, of course, this was translated in part of every Bible, and not everybody reads the preface. How many of you all sit down and read? When you pick up a book, do you read the preface? You ought to tells you what the author's trying to do in the book. Most people skip it. That's not important. It's just a preface. Let me skip to the real meat. You know, you should always read the preface. Well, most people didn't read the preface, and so because these books of the Apocrypha were included in their, in their Bible, I mean, it's in there, isn't it? People came to accept the fact that they were just as authoritative as the rest of the Bible. And at the Council of Trent, on April 8th of 1546, with only 53 church leaders present, not one of whom was a distinguished scholar in historical studies, the Council of Trent decreed that the Old Testament canon included the Apocrypha. And that was in reaction to, that was in reaction to Protestant theology. See, Protestant theology, re- uh, uh, rejected things like, uh, prayer for the dead. They, they rejected various other doctrines that uh, like purgatory, and these come out of the Apocrypha. So that's why that became such a big issue. And then the Council of Trent anathematized or put a curse on anyone who did not accept the entirety of the Old Testament plus the Apocrypha. So y'all are under a curse from the Council of Trent. Just wanted you to know that. Now, here are the problems that you have with the Apocrypha. First of all, they're written predominantly in Greek. They're not written in Hebrew like the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew with a few exceptions that are written in Aramaic. Daniel uh, chapter 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. A few chapters in Ezra are written in Aramaic. and uh, But the majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But the Apocrypha is primarily written in Greek with the exception of Tobit, Tobit Judith, Ecclesiasticus, part of Baruch, and 1 Maccabees, which are written in either Hebrew or Aramaic. The second problem with the Apocrypha is that it's written late. It's written after the Old Testament canon is closed. And there's clear evidence from Jewish writings that the Old Testament was, they, they understood that with Malachi, God quit revealing things. So it's written late. They're written during the last two centuries before Christ long after the Jewish canon is completed. Third problem with the Apocrypha is that it has numerous historical, geographical, and chronological errors. For example, in Tobit 1, 4 through 5, 
there's a statement that the division of the kingdom, that is when the Old Testament divided under Jeroboam the first in 931 B.C., that Tobit was a young man. So he's a young man in 931 B.C., but he also claims to be a young Israelite captive living in Nineveh under Shalmaneser in the late 8th century. So that means that's 200 years later in the 700s B.C. So this would make him a young man, almost 200 years old, at the time of the Assyrian captivity. And he claims to have lived well into the reign of Esar Haddon from 680 to 668 B.C. Uh, but according to Tobit, 1411, he died when he was 158 years old. So how could he have lived over 250 years and only be 158 years old? So there are problems like that. In the book of Judith, there's another problem. Judith 1.1 declares that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over the Assyrians at Nineveh at the time that Arphaxad reigned over the Medes and Ecbatana. But Nebuchadnezzar never reigned over the Assyrians at Nineveh. He was the second king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire and reigned at Babylon. Our facts that is completely unknown from history. So there's numerous historical, geographical, and chronological inaccuracies, but there's also some false doctrine. False doctrine. For example, there are prayers and offerings for the dead in 2 Maccabees. They have the giving of money to make atonement for sin. And there's justification of cruelty for slaves in Ecclesiasticus 3, 36, 38, and 30. Uh, there's, or 36, 38, and 40. That, that teaches the pre-existence of souls and the wisdom of Solomon. It uh, teaches that there's an emanation from God in, in, uh, with the wisdom of Solomon. There are other doctrines such as purgatory which are also mentioned in the Apocrypha. So this is what gives rise to the difference between Roman Catholicism and and Protestantism in relationship to the canon. And remember, the canon is determined by the church in Roman Catholicism, which I've already seen is shown is a, is a pagan notion, whereas for Protestants it is a recognition of the inherent authority within the books from the Holy Spirit. And the early church recognized these things. And as we'll see next time, is that when we get into the new te- issue of New Testament canon, is that the books that we have in the New Testament were all used. There were a couple of books that we have that were questioned for a while because you didn't know who the author of Hebrews was. You, some of the books were took a while before they surfaced, such as Philemon, Second uh, John, Third John, because they were written to individuals. But there are no books outside of our 27 that were ever seriously considered for the canon. Okay? So we can, we can have tremendous confidence in the scripture. Another basis for understanding, uh, the Old Testament canon is a little history. For example, you have three Jewish groups in the Old Testament. You had the Jewish exiles who went to Babylon. You had another group that's in Palestine, and, and then you have another area that, group that's in Egypt. Each of these groups had the same canon. They're completely separate. There's no communication between these groups. And you have a Jewish community in, in uh, Babylon, and they affirmed in the Talmud around 200 A.D. in, in the tractate Baba Bathra that there were 22 books in the Old Testament. They wrote, quote, The most ancient record with regard to the sequence of the books in the Hebrew Scriptures is that given in the Babylonian Talmud. Passing over the Pentateuch, uh, over which there has never been any doubt, it said that that, uh, that these 24 books are the highest authority, and they give the same order 
that that we have in the Hebrew Bible today. And this was from 200 A.D., but it recognizes a much older tradition. Second, we have another community in Palestine, and this is represented by Josephus. And Josephus was not a religious writer. He's simply a historian. And in his uh, book, Contra Apion, uh, chapter 1, section 41, which was written about the end of the first century, he clearly mentions that we have 22 books, that we the Jews hold to 22 books. And he mentions them. And so he recognizes before the Council of Yamnia that there are 22 books in their Old Testament. So it's, again, an evidence that this is a, a time-honored uh, belief and tradition among the Jews. And then the third Jewish group is in Alexandria, and this is represented by Philo. And Philo also in his writings recognized that among the Jews there were only 22 authoritative books. And then there was another book, 4th Esdras, which is written about 80 A.D., 10 years before the Council of Yamnia, which said that the Jewish community consistently recognized only 22 or 24 books. So again and again and again you have evidence that there's only these books. Jesus and the disciples recognized the same canon. Jesus in Luke 24:44 said to the disciples, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Well, that's the threefold division of the Hebrew canon, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. They were called the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the, Ken- and, and the Psalms. So Jesus clearly affirms that there's a threefold division in the Old Testament canon at his life, which is 60 years before the Council of Yomnia. Furthermore, in Matthew 23:35, he said to the, to the Pharisees, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, what does he mean here? From the blood of righteous Abel. Abel is murdered by Cain in Genesis 4 at the very beginning. But what about Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar? Well, Berechiah... You have the, uh, the, the record of the assassination of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, in Second Chronicles 24.20, and it occurred about 825 B.C. But he's, he is not the last prophet slain in the Old Testament. So why does Jesus go from Abel to Zechariah? Because in the Old Testament organization, Second Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you're looking at the Old Testament canon, the Hebrew canon, the first murder is Abel, and the last murder at the last chapter, almost the last chapter of Second Chronicles, is Zechariah. So he's going from the beginning to the end. So he is showing by this quote that at his time, the, the Jews had the same canon, the same organization that they have uh, today. Well, how do we know that that the Bible has really been transmitted uh, accurately. Well, look, let's look at the history of the transmission briefly. Remember, Jesus died approximately 33 A.D. The Masoretic text, which is the basis for the Hebrew Old Testament, written by the Masoretes, uh, the, Maser- the, the term uh, 
Mazora has to do with the uh, writings, the authority of the scrolls. I have the ex- drawing a blank on the exact definition right now. That doesn't matter. Masoretic text is a standard text of Hebrew Old Testament written in A.D. 1008. That's the oldest or extant complete collection we have called Codex Leningradensis, which is the basis for the Hebrew Old Testament. We don't have anything before that. There's some partial uh, codexes that uh, are date from about the century before that. So the earliest partial collection that we have is dated around 93940 AD. But in 1948 we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are at Qumran, which is a was the uh, a religious community on the northern shore of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea Scrolls date from about 250 BC to AD 100. Now, this is a period of 1,200 years, 11 to 1,200 years before the Masoretic text. And you would think that if there were, uh, that over the course of a 1,000 years, that there would be a number of changes. But there aren't. In fact, one of the most stunning discoveries that they found was a complete collection, or a complete scroll of Isaiah. And this gave them an opportunity to compare an Isaiah scroll from approximately 100 B.C., uh, 100 to 125 B.C., with the Isaiah text of the Masoretic text in 1008 A.D. And what they discovered was approximately 200 differences between the Qumran text and the Masoretic text. But the vast majority of these were rejected. Most of them were minor punctuation Differences, spelling differences, style changes. But when they, when they examined this in the late 1940s, they only accepted 13 differences as substantive. And they adopted those. Miller Burrs, who was the dean of the school down here at Yale and was on the translation committee for the Revised Standard Version, accepted those 13 differences when they translated Isaiah for the RSV. Later, he rejected all of them. In fact, his conclusion later, after years of study and more thought and contemplation, was that the manuscript in the Masoretic text was superior to the to the text that they the older text of the of found in Qumran. All of this is simply to show that that uh, the Jews had an extremely technical method of tra- copying and transmitting the text. People say, well, why don't we have anything older? And it's because they revered the text so much that when the scrolls wore out, they burned them, they destroyed them. They didn't want that if there was a hole in the, in the parchment or, or something of that nature, they didn't want anything uh, transmitted that was less than perfect. They counted every letter. And so when they, and some of these scrolls would be 30 or 40 feet in length, and they would count every letter and they would, uh, go and look at the copy, and if it was off by one letter, they would destroy the manuscript completely. So this protected and preserved the Old Testament. And of course, what is happening behind the scenes is God in His sovereignty is preserving the text. He is watching over in providential care His, His revelation. He not only guarantees it in terms of the initial inspiration, but in his sovereign care, he is 
providentially preserving the Scripture so that nothing is lost and nothing is added to it. So we can have confidence, tremendous confidence. History substantiates the claims embedded in both the Old and New Testament that the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have are the revelation of God. There's no more, there's no less, and there's been no changes. You, you don't have to worry about the fact that something might have been lost or something that might not have been discovered or that somebody snuck something in. There is tremendous evidence to support the integrity of the Old Testament. Now, next week we'll come back and we'll look at how, at how we got the New Testament and why we can trust the New Testament, okay, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you for the uh, evidence of your, the truthfulness of your word, which you have included within history, that we can see its uh, miraculous preservation and how you have watched over down through the centuries so that we can have confidence that we have your word to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on what you've done. It's not based on uh, what church you're involved with. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins, and that becomes our salvation when we believe in him, when we trust in his, his work. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.